Read with me God's word, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your hearts for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are, be are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For as all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thanks, Pat. Why don't you turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25 as we are spending some time in First and Second Peter this summer. As it turns out, purpose matters. The why of something matters. And before you try and argue with me on that, let's just make it pretty plain. There is a difference between a hairbrush and a toilet brush. <laughs> and the purpose of that is important. If you don't know the difference, don't tell anybody sitting near you. They're not going to. Purpose matters. Why we do something, what motivates us matters. If, if you're involved in work and they send you to training, there's purpose for that training. Generally, it's to get you better at your job, to make you more successful at your job, to bring greater benefit from your job to the employer, to your career. There's a purpose behind things, and there is a purpose behind our relationship with Christ. There's a purpose behind our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and understanding that purpose is critically important. Otherwise, it can dramatically uh, dictate how our Christian life might go. I'm just going to start here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. It's probably a verse you have memorized. Here's what it says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which... God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So what is this saying? Well, he said just a verse or two before that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. So that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good work. So that's a purpose statement. Why has God redeemed us by his grace into Christ Jesus? For good works. 
The purpose is to redeem us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. Why? Not so that we can just feel good about ourselves. The why is good works. Well, what are those good works? Galatians chapter 5. I actually have two messages, the intro and the message. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read beginning in verse 16 and a whole bunch of other verses. Uh, don't have a lot to say on it because it makes it pretty plain. What is good works is what we're answering through Galatians 5.16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh in the Bible is our body, but primarily that old sinful nature that we still retain because we're not raised from the dead yet. And uh, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are not led by the Spirit, I should say if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The works of the flesh are obvious, are evident. Here they are. Here's a list of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Like the list is not comprehensive, just pay attention. And similar such things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Do you belong to Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? Then the Bible tells us we have crucified with Christ our flesh. But we're not home yet. We're not raised from the dead yet. We're still walking around in it. And so our flesh has these passions, and he gives a pretty detailed description of these passions and what the Bible is telling us, we have been saved for good works, not the old stuff. We have been saved to do the things of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self, uh, self-control, and not to do, the, to do the things of the flesh, sensuality, idolatry, adultery, strife, jealousy, envy, drunkenness. He says those are the things of the of flesh, and we have been saved to do the things of the Spirit. The purpose is to, and here's the title of the message today, live holy. Live holy. Okay, now we're ready to get into 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll actually start the message. All of that was free. It's absolutely no charge. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. This is not... Sometimes you read the Bible, you read parts of the Bible, and you go, what in the world does that mean? You ever do that? You read part of the Bible, and you go, what? No idea what that means. Most of Leviticus, right? This is not complicated. 
So let's not make it complicated. It's very, very simple. Not easy, simple. But as he who called you, that's God through Christ Jesus, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Very simple, isn't it? It's very straightforward. Is God holy, yes or no? Yes, good answer. Are you holy in all your conduct? No, that's why it's in here. If it were automatic, you wouldn't have written it. Because God is holy, our purpose in Christ is to live holy in all of our conduct. Let me just make a couple of uh, observations about this as a matter of understanding this passage. First thing, live holy, verses 13 through 16, in hope. Live holy in hope. And let me explain that. Just at the beginning of the uh, Revolutionary War, the American Revolutionary War, a guy named Paul Revere went out for a ride in the middle of the night. Remember that? Some of you were there? Right? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's terrible. That's terrible. Um, so what it was is they knew that the British troops were starting to get on the move, and they had this idea that they were going to tr- start uh, uh, seizing their military weapons, their militia well, muskets and their powder and their, uh, all, the, all the ammunitions. And so they were paying attention to where the British were going because they wanted to know where they were headed to protect the armaments they had. The, the war really hadn't started in terms of hostilities yet. And they had a, a signal system, say, well, if the British are going to move here, we have these riders that will go out as dispatches to let everybody know what's going on. Of course, you know the, the story in the bell tower. Uh, they said of one light, one of by land, two of by water. And, uh, and so the, the signal was given, the British are on the move, and Paul Revere, among others, were dispatched out to let people know the British were moving, the way they were going, and where they were headed. And what they were doing is letting the folks know they're headed to this primary weapons storage cache, and we need to get those weapons moved. So he he makes a very simple appeal in the middle of the night from his horse, probably not yelling out. He's an absolutely terrible military announcer if he's screaming out from his horse, riding, probably stopping at predetermined locations and letting people know. The British are moving. We need to move the weapons. British moving. We need to get everything squared away. It's on. Let's get ready. Here we go. Uh, So what it is, is he is a call to action based on facts. Here are the facts. The British are doing A, B, and C, so therefore we must respond accordingly. So we need to do these things because we see these things happen. And this is precisely the argument that Peter is making to us to live a life that is holy. Look at verse 13, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope, your hope, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as a result of everything that came before, well, what came before? Go on YouTube and watch last week's sermon. That was last week. I can't help you if you weren't here. Everything that came before, the, which was primarily a dictation of the good news that Jesus saves sinners like us. Since God was so good to send Christ to save sinners like you and I, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Has the Holy Spirit illuminated your heart that you might recognize you're a sinner and you need salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And you responded, yes, I believe. Save me, Lord. Forgive me of all my dirty, rotten sins. Those are my past. Those are my present. Those are my future. God says, yes. Therefore, what? Prepare your minds for action. There is information that is actionable. And the information is this. Look at the end of verse 13. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he's saying, 
fix your hope on what you know is coming. Always got to remind one another, hope in the Bible is not Disneyland hope. Wish on a star. Hope stuff works out. A pipe dream. Hope in the Bible is always a description of the reality of what is and settling ourselves on that reality. So the reality is Jesus is coming back, and when he returns, it's on. I think that's the actual verse in the Bible. He will be riding a white horse, and it's, oh, it's on. No hiding this time. As Jesus said in Matthew, when he returns, it will be like lightning. You can see it from the east to the west. Nobody will be going, oh, what's going on? Jesus will arrive. And he's saying, we fix our hope on this settled reality. Jesus will return. Those who are in him will be raised. And we will finally live the life we were supposed to live. In that reality, set your minds for action. Fix your minds on the hope that is Christ. Being sober-minded, meaning having your mind focused on that which it ought to be focused on. We are called into action not to appease God, not to impress God, not to add to our salvation. We are called into holiness because the future is real. The description of reality for Christ's resurrection is true, and we want to live today with that reality as our hope. We will always be holy in Christ forever. Live today knowing that reality is more true than whatever whims my flesh offers me this afternoon. The reality of Christ's victory is more true than whatever desires might be ginned up in my flesh this week. And a sober-minded, action-minded individual fixes their mind on that hope and says, so therefore, I'm going to deny what my flesh is telling me and say, I believe in that hope more so. Prepare our minds for action. Some of your translations are actually kind of funny. Not, not inaccurate, accurate, just funny because it's, a weird way of thinking it. It actually says, gird your minds. Any of your translations have gird your minds? Uh, gird your loins is a phrase you might be familiar with. Oh, yeah, I use that all the time. In the, back then, guys would wear kind of flowing robes and whatnot. And when they had to go into battle, they would tie it up and cinch it around their waist. It's called girding your loins so that way you could run and fight and do gymnastics and whatever and not get tied up in your robe. <laughs> He's saying, gird the loins of your mind. Okay, that's weird. Okay, but that's the right way of saying it. He's saying, get ready, get fit, get after it. This is not passive, lazy, well, whatever I feel like thinking about today. What we discover here is holiness starts in the inner person. Holiness starts in us, not outside of us. Our hope is hitched onto the future glory we have in Christ, and because of that, we say, I will not let anything in my mind Steal away the hope I have of my resurrection in Christ one day so I will prepare my mind, whatever it takes to keep my inner person focused on the things of the Lord because my behavior, my, the actions of my body are going to flow from my inner person. Have I prepared my mind for action and been sober-minded, meaning settling my, thing, my mind on the things of Christ, not the things of the former passions, of my flesh. One pastor put it this way, what do you settle your mind on when you have nothing else to do or think about? Where does your mind go when you have a moment of leisure and nothing really to occupy your time? The question is, he is saying here, let's prepare our minds for action. In those moments where there's nothing else to capture our mind, let's say, 
I will have my mind captured on a hope that is more real than even now. Holiness starts in the inner person, and holiness is a function of our relationship with God. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children is a a figure of speech. He's illustrating our relationship with him as father and children, which is true, but he's also trying to draw into us the understanding of how we even parent our children. Sometimes we will tell our children what ought to be. Here, you need to do this. And they will say, why? And as a parent, you say, nothing delights me more than having to explain myself to someone such as yourself. I woke up this morning hoping that every time I would ask you to do anything, you would ask for a detailed report on why this... And what do we say as parents when children say that? Because I said so. I'm glad it's not just me. Okay. Okay, now it seems very silly. In one way, this is what God is calling us to here. He is going to say, I'm going to call you into holiness. Everything about your inner person, everything about your flesh, that part of us that is not yet redeemed, that part of us that has not yet been made whole in Christ, everything about you is going to tell you I'm wrong. And we're going to say, God, but why? And God is going to say, because I told you so. We have to keep in mind, though, the character and nature of God. God is only going to call us into holiness because it is what's good and best and most satisfying for us. Now, oftentimes in the scripture, the Bible will explain why we are called into holiness sexually, why we're called into holiness with our money and resources, why we're called into holiness with our, uh, the words we speak. But many times in the Bible, it's because I'm God and I know what's best. Don't play in the freeway. But everything about us says, but that is the one thing in my life that brings me happiness and contentment and satisfaction. That's so like you, God, to take away the one thing that is good for me. And God says, you need to, in humility, recognize I know a little better than you what is good for you. Holiness is a function of our relationship where as children we recognize and trust God is a loving and doting and generous Father and we learn through obedience. And over time, we will learn that His commands to us are for our best. Live holy in the hope of a fixed reality and in the hope that God is a Father who has His best for us. What is coming for us? Glory. Who is our Father? God. So therefore, our hope is fixed on our glory in God the Father, in God the Son, Jesus Christ. So therefore now, in anticipation of that certain future, let's live holy today with that hope fixed. Let me put it this way. Sin is merely hope in something besides God. Think about that. Sin is merely placing our hope in something besides God for our satisfaction. Oh, sure, God is great for religion. God is great for church. God is great for having a sense of the mystical, the spiritual, the immaterial. But when it comes right down to it, I need a truck. And you say, well, that sounds silly. No, it's absolutely not silly. That's how our mind works. We have developed our... If this thing is not, whatever it might be, a happy marriage, a, a nice house, the job you're looking for, a certain kind of income, a certain kind of relationship, this person really gets me. They don't. By the way, 
all of that is hope that this thing can provide for me that which only God can provide. Sin is always hope in something besides God for satisfaction, for happiness, for meaning, all of these things. One author says it this way. I'll read the quote. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Christians, there is a way of living that dulls the reality of God and makes God seem less satisfying and the things of this world more satisfying. And over time, that makes us numb to God's goodness and his holiness And we only think about fulfilling fulfilling our earthly desires. One last illustration in this section. Say you're really, really hungry. And some of you present, yeah, you're really, really hungry. You skipped lunch because you're looking for this great meal. So you sit down at the table and there's two plates. One has lasagna on it and not lasagna warmed up. This is lasagna. Somebody knows how to make noodles from scratch. It's, It's a family sauce. It's got this, the great ricotta cheese. It's got the little bit of Italian sausage in there, right? It's a big plate. And you say, well, is this for me and like three other people? No, that's all for you. Oh, wow. And then this other plate is a plate of rocks, right? I mean, this is not a complicated decision, is it? Well, this is what sin is. Sin is eating the rocks. The Bible, it's eating the rocks and thinking it will satisfy. Something in us gets uh, messed up with the deceitfulness of the world and the, and the deceitfulness of our own desires and the temptation the enemy brings our way, and we think, God's good lasagna, well, that's good, but it's never going to satisfy me the way this pile of rocks will. And of course, that sounds silly, but that's exactly how the Bible describes sin. We go to it over and over and over again, thinking this will be the time where I will be satisfied where my anger will finally bring out the justice I deserve, when that uh, flirtatious relationship with, that isn't uh, our spouse will finally bring the satisfaction of someone really getting me, when having that extra dollar I thought I always needed would finally bring the contentment to know everything's going to be okay, and we keep going to the pile of rocks, and what happens every time? We leave with broken teeth, we're still hungry, we don't know what the problem is, and usually we then get mad at God. And he said, but you didn't eat my lasagna. Holiness is saying, God is good. He is our Father, and he gives us what we need. And holiness, setting our minds for action, is a willingness to doubt my own desires and put faith in God's purposes. That I will settle myself on holiness and living my my life God's way because I have a hope that one day everything will be made whole in him. Live holy in hope that our glory in life will be summed up in Christ one day. Second one, look at verse 17 through 21. Live holy for Christ. Live holy for Christ. Now, if you set up a trust fund, the trust fund will have a beneficiary. So say, for example, you want to leave some money to your children, you want to leave some money uh, to an organization, whatever you might do, you might set up a trust, and then over time you'll add assets to the trust, and then when... I don't know how to say it. Your hope is fulfilled. (laughs) And you go home. That trust, therefore, has beneficiaries. So that trust now will benefit somebody. 
Same thing with a life insurance policy. Uh, you buy it, and there's a beneficiary so that when the terms of the policy are triggered, I don't know how to say that politely, <laughs> uh, there's a beneficiary to that policy. Somebody benefits from the policy. So the question is, who benefits from our holiness? I'm going to give you the answer. It's not you. God is not calling us to holiness because it's the best way to live. God is not calling us to holiness because that's a blessed life. God is calling us to holiness because the beneficiary of our life of worship is Christ himself. Think of it this way. Your favorite band is coming to Brit. I don't know who that favorite band is, but say your favorite band is coming to Brit. And then you remember, you've got this good friend just across town. It's also their favorite brand. Oh, my goodness. So you call them up. Do you want to get tickets? Yeah, okay, I'll buy the tickets. I'll pick you up. So you make the date, get tickets. You go and pick up your friend. You go to Brit. You've got your blanket. You spread it out on the ground. You get your little picnic basket out. Your bottle of um, whatever you got in your bottle. You know, I'll just leave that up to you. It's, it's your thing. Actually, I don't even know if you can bring in outside drinks there anymore. Anyway, people do. Um, from what I've heard. Uh, so you sit down, you get it spread out, and your friend is coming over, and your friend stands there. Say, you know, this is going to be kind of weird, but I found a bunch of my friends from work were also coming. It's, I'm going to go sit with them. All right, so let's meet up after the concert. Of course, you might ride home, and then we'll talk about it. It'll be awesome. And you're like, well, okay, that's weird. I thought we were going together. Um, how about, what, I can come and... I get someone come sit with you and your friends. That'll be all right. I mean, I can get to know them. Might be a good time. You're like, uh, yeah, I don't really like to mix like one part of my life and the other part. That's my work thing. And you're not really in my work thing. So I kind of want to keep those two, those two worlds kind of over here. I mean, none of us would do church over here and work over here. Right? Okay, that's too personal. Um, so you stay here. Got a good plan. You stay here. I'm going to go do my thing. Appreciate the ticket. I'm going to do, and then we'll meet up after and we'll ride home together. Anybody like this situation? I mean, nobody's down with this, right? And this is what God is calling. He said, we have been redeemed into Christ for Christ. Jesus bought the ticket, brings us to the concert, and now he wants to participate with us in this life for him. He, he wants to be with us. Verse 17, if you call him as father, if you, I should say, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made himself manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you call God Father, since you are able to call on God as Father, why are we able to call on God as Father? Because Christ has redeemed us by purchasing us out of slavery, out of sin, out of death, into life and holiness. What was the cost of the ticket? Look what it says, verse 19. He bought us, not with things like silver and gold, but with what? His own blood. 
So God, Jesus has saved us. The purchase price was his own blood to redeem us into relationship with God. God, Jesus has bought the ticket to the concert, called us to hang out with him, and the purchase price was his, his life. His blood was shed so that we might have relationship with God. And now he is saying, this life you live is now for me. It is for you to live with me and for me. Another way of saying this, Jesus did not buy us so we could live a better life on our own. He bought us to live the best life we could, which is life with him day in and day out. Look back at verse 17. Conduct yourselves um, with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, we have just gone through Exodus. We don't need to go through the whole book again today. Exile is this. They came out of Egypt, and then one day they went to the promised land. Exile is everything between those two things. Called the wilderness wandering. And, and what he is doing is drawing our attention back to Exodus and saying, remember all that wandering time where they had to rely on the Lord day in and day out for their food and for their clothing and for victory over enemies before they got to the promised land? He's comparing that to our life between salvation and resurrection. And during that time, he's saying, you have been redeemed into God's family. Live with your eyes open to who God is. And that's what he, how he says that is, conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Fear is just a recognition of who God is and what he is like. Having eyes open, eyes clear of who God is. He is big. He is glorious. Everything is in him. He is over all things and he is holy. And he is saying, since we have been redeemed into relationship with God, in this time of exile, our eyes need to be open to who God is and what he is like and to conduct ourselves in a manner accordingly. One author says it this way, there is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence in the Lord. See, we think if we have a fear of God, we therefore cannot be confident in His loving kindness and His faithfulness, His goodness. But the two things are not contradictory in the Bible. We are able to experience God's loving kindness and goodness and faithfulness, even while recognizing He is God and we are not. Every time somebody encountered God in the Bible, what was their response? It wasn't, oh, hey, what's up? Did you notice that? In fact, every time somebody encountered even the angels of God in the Bible, what, what did the, the, the angels start with? Don't be afraid. We're, we're good. Don't be afraid. God is God. We are not. He is big. He is glorious. And he is holy. And in this time of exile, we are being called to recognize in worship, God's ways are better than our ways. In worship, I live my life for Christ who has redeemed my, my life. We are devoted then to Christ because we know the price of our salvation, his blood, and because we know the price of his, our salvation and because we know what God is like, we say, I want to live my life devoted to Christ in holiness. Look at Acts 20, 28. It's up on the screen. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's writing to some elders of a church, I think, Ephesus, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. The purchase price of the body of Christ and the purchase price of the individuals in the body of Christ 
is the blood of Christ. All of human history culminated at the cross, according to 1 Peter 1, 20. All of human history culminated at the cross, at his blood being shed for us. All of that was done that for our benefit, that we might receive a relationship with God, that we might receive righteousness from God, that through faith we could experience the hope of God. And when we put our faith in Christ for salvation, we receive God himself. We gain God and his kingdom. But our salvation is for Jesus. What do we gain? God and his kingdom. So are we square? Like, are you okay with that or do you need more than that? But our salvation is not for us. We gain God and his kingdom, but our salvation is to bring glory and honor and majesty to him who saved us, Jesus himself. So therefore, we live holy as an act of worship to Jesus who saved us by shedding his blood on the cross. Well, you say, well, I want to live for holy, God, holy for God, and I'll do so when I'm motivated to do so. I don't want to just be legalistic and just stop sinning. Here, I'll tell you what, here's another way to do it. How about stop sinning and wait for the legalism to catch up? You say, well, that doesn't seem very righteous. That seems pretty loving if you want to worship God. Hear me carefully. I'm not saying earn, earn our favor with God. But so, we are so good at coming up with any of a number of excuses to say why we shouldn't live holy. It is okay sometimes just to say, I'm going to do it because it ought to be done and Jesus deserves my worship. We do this all the time in our marriages. I've talked about this before. Anybody wash dishes angry? No. I mean, you're like, no. Every time I get up to wash the dishes. And you're doing it real loud. Everybody in the house can hear. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> That's not passive aggressive at all. Um, so, why we do it? Well, because on the one hand, yeah, we're upset. On the other hand, it's gotta, we know it's, it's got to be done. Now, if that, if that defines all of your Christian life for all of your Christian life, that's a problem. But sometimes, sometimes it's okay to just say no to sin because you know it's right and, you're and you just say no. You say, well, I want to say no to sin when I'm motivated to do so. How about Jesus is worthy of you saying no to your sin even when you don't want to? Which would you rather confess, your legalism or your sin? You say, well, both. Okay, then fine. It is okay to say, just say no to sin because Jesus is worth it. And that's what he's calling us into. He's saying, we have gained God and we have gained the kingdom. What do we give Jesus as an act of worship is our holiness. We say no to sin and we say yes to righteousness. God is given to us. What other benefit could we possibly seek? Having gained God in his kingdom, we live holy for Christ. What I want to remove from our minds is this, just a little bit, not terribly, but just a bit. Sometimes, it, well, yeah, we want to live the Christian life because that's really the best way to live. It brings the most benefit. You know, really, it's the right way to have a strong family, and, and people who are Christians at work tend to be more successful at work just because they're worth it, work ethic or whatever, and uh, Christians who uh, really serve the Lord, their grass just seems to be greener. Who knows Why? They pray over it or something. I don't know. You know, but there are plenty of Christians who lived really good Christian lives and died martyrs. 
living the holy Christian life may bring you benefit. I pray it would. The primary benefit is we get to worship God, and for a lot of Christians throughout history, living, ho- living holy strapped them to a post with a fire lit under it. William Tyndale. Living holy meant translating the Bible into English. Some folks didn't like that, apparently, and they burned him for it. So what we want to take out of our mind is this notion that holiness just leads to extra benefits in life. It doesn't always. Sometimes living holy is just hard because our flesh is not resurrected from the dead yet. When will the struggle with sin end? At your funeral. Or when the Lord returns. So strap in. Let's go. Are we going to fix, are we going to gird our minds for actions? Let's get, are we going to live holy because Jesus is that good? That's why if we have this polite little notion of who God is, this becomes really hard. But if God is glorious, if God has created the universe, and Jesus is so kind to shed his blood for us, we can say, I'll live holy for him. He deserves it. And, and as an act of worship, we say, I'm going to set aside my sin, and I'm going to engage in righteousness because he is worth it. Live holy for Christ. Matthew 22, verse 34. Then we're going to conclude with this. Matthew 22, verse 34. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees because they were sad, you see. They gathered together, that is Pharisees, and one of them, a lawyer, asked, I'm nothing against lawyers, listen, and just it's what it is, job. Take it for what it is. Asked, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of, uh, or in the law? And Jesus said this to the lawyer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and all of the prophets. What do I want to say here as we get into verse 22 through 25? If everything we do as an act of holiness is worship for Jesus and Jesus is for others, therefore, the primary place our holiness will be exercised is with others. If our holiness is an act of worship to Christ and Jesus is for others, then the primary place where our holiness will be exercised is with others. Look at 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, listen, we don't expect to read this. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, that is obedience to trust Jesus for forgiveness, and now having trusted Jesus, seeking to worship him through holiness, since you've purified your souls with obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Since you are saved, since you are holy, and since you want to live holy as an act of worship, love one another. Didn't see that coming, did we? We expected, since you are holy, and since you've been made holy, stop being naughty. 
He says, love one another. Live holy in hope. Live holy for Christ. And here, finally, live holy with each other. So it's summertime, and some of the students are gearing up already uh, to get ready for uh, fall sports, football, uh, soccer, basketball in the winter. So some of the students are thinking, gotta get, I got to get swole, as the kids say. You get toned up a bit. So you go to one of these guys, hey, you're going to have a football team? Yeah, I'm going to have football, and I'm thinking about toning up a bit. All right, okay, so you're thinking about lifting weights? Kind of little resistance training, bulk up a little bit? Oh, no, 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 weights are heavy. <laughs> well, how are you going to tone up? So, well, you know, I'm going to watch a lot of TV, and then every now and then i got to get up and get a snack. So I figure that's kind of like exercise. Get up and get a snack, go back, going to tone up. See, it doesn't make any sense, does it? If you want to tone up, you got to lift weights, or you got to exercise, you got to eat right. And what he's saying here, live holy means living holy with each other. Just say, well, I can live holy, I'm going to go join a monastery. Doesn't work that way. Holiness is lived within relationship with one another. We are saved in Christ, saved with one another. We're going to see next week, we are called into the people of God. This is very contrary to our culture. We're very individualistic. Say, I decide to follow Jesus. And the Bible calls us to follow Jesus with others. Having purified yourselves, love one another. To be saved, to be saved, is to love one another. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. I've read it before, so if this is a review for you, uh, that's okay. It's from his, um, it's a book called Weight of Glory. And it's his discussion of our attitudes toward uh, others. It's kind of lengthy. It's four or five paragraphs. Try and stay with me. Um, but I think it's helpful in understanding. Live holy with one another. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday. A cleft has been opened in the walls of the world, and we're invited to follow our great uh, Jesus inside, and the following him, of course, is the point. That being so, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory with Christ. However, it is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about that of our neighbor. It is very likely for us to think too much of our own potential glory in heaven, isn't it? Oh yeah, big house. But he is saying it is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about our neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud broken. It is a serious thing to live to remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a glorified person that if you saw him that way now, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. It is in light of this. It is with the, this awe and this circumspection that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Think about that. Are you, can, you get that? You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, all these things are mortal, and their life, when compared to ours, is that of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. We must take one another seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Our charity must be real and our love costly. With deep feelings for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. Next to Christ, our neighbor is the most glorious object ever presented to our senses. He is glorious in the same way as, in, as Christ in Christ, for in him also Christ the glorifier and is glorified. What he is calling us to do here is to recognize the people around us, our brothers and sisters in the Lord in Christ, our participants in the glory of Christ. We should afford one another the love and the grace and the mercy that Christ affords us now, knowing one day we will see one another glorified in Christ for his glory. And we should treat each other one, and now, one another now with our future hope and glory in mind. We are holy, live holy with each other. All holiness is expressed in what we do and we don't do in relationship with others. Think about the Ten Commandments. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's Exodus chapter 20. Ten Commandments, there's ten of them. Ish. I mean, some of them have a lot of facets to them. But here, I don't know if you noticed this. Seven of the Ten Commandments have to do with how you relate with other people. Honor your father and mother. Father and mother are other people. You shall not murder that person you're killing. Other people. You shall not steal. Assuming that stuff you're taking is belonging to... You're getting it. Mike's got it. Other people. Yeah, but I want it, so therefore it's mine. Okay. You shall not lie about your neighbor. You shall not envy your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's dog, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's employees, your neighbor's ox or his donkey. Nailed it. Anything that's your neighbor. Oh, that one's a struggle. Even the Sabbath day. Listen, he says, remember on the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You're like, okay, that doesn't involve anybody else. Yes, it does. Make sure that your son, your daughter, your employees your livestock, and your foreigner within you also get to rest. When God calls us into holiness, his commands, his, his calls to obedience have to do with primarily how we relate to one another. Do we envy? Do we uh, have hatred? Do we have resentment? Do we have unforgiveness? Do we have selfishness? He is calling us to holiness, not, not an island by ourselves, he is calling us to holiness in a community of believers together. It doesn't come automatic because people are people. I put it this way. Sometimes people are funny. Have you noticed this? There are people in your life that you say, okay, that's a toughie. And this is what God calls us to in holiness, to engage in loving relationship the same way Christ did, which is to offer love and grace to those who don't deserve it. There's no command in the Bible for you to love people who deserve it. They don't exist. There are myriads of commands in the Bible to love everyone with Christ's love, 
which is to extend love to those who just simply will never deserve it. But will they finally get it and get their act around, turned around? I don't know. Will you? I am thankful Christ does not hang that over my head. I'll keep you loving you, but the hope is you'll figure it out. He just keeps loving us the same way we ought to love one another in the gospel in community together. Look at the last verse of uh, this section, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass. That means all people, our bodies, all flesh is like glass, grass, its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, the gospel, is the good news that was preached to you. God's word, his gospel endures forever. He loves, so we love others because offering love to others is good news. Offering love to others who don't deserve it is good news. Okay, last reference I want to turn to you. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. John chapter 6, 66 through 69. I think it's up on the screen. After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He said some really edgy stuff. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. The gospel, the good news, the word of God is hope in Jesus. The life in Jesus with each other is good news. That we experience the gospel of Christ in life when we give and receive love that is undeserved. When we give and receive humble service that is undeserved. When we give and receive charity undeserved. When we give and receive prayer that is undeserved. That is when we experience in community the gospel of Christ by the power of Christ. Loving one another in the power of Christ. We live holy with each other. All right, a couple of things to close out. Live holy in hope, live holy for Christ, live holy with each other. First thing is when you think about the hope of eternity with Christ, is it real? When the Bible talks about heaven, it is not a pipe dream. When the Bible talks about the glories of heaven, it is describing reality. And our hope of heaven must be biblical, that is, founded on the reality that Christ says, we will live with him forever and be captivated by him forever and be giving a compelling activity and relationship forever. As long as heaven is some fairy tale notion, this world will always offer something better. The Bible calls us to holiness because we attach our hope to a future that's better than this time. We can say no to the stuff of this world because we have something better that's coming. My challenge to you would be this. Understand the hope of heaven in a biblical sense. It's real and it will be amazing. Second question I might ask this is why did you get saved? You ever ask that question? Why did you get saved? Well, I needed forgiveness. We all agree. Why did you get saved? Well, I didn't want to go to hell. Okay, that's fair. Shouldn't want that. It will not be a party. Why did you get saved? 
Let me just throw this other piece of the puzzle into our mind. Did you get saved to be with Jesus? He saved you to be with you. He saved you to call you out of your life of isolation without God into a relationship with him forever. Holiness will always be difficult for us to get our head around as long as God is over there. God has called us into relationship through Christ that he might be with us. That we gain God, and as a result, we offer our worship to Christ in a life of holiness, saying no to sin and yes to righteous love for one another. Next question. I only have a dozen of them. I'm going to keep asking them until one hits home for you, all right? Think about others. To be in Christ is to see others as Christ does. To see, to be in Christ is to see others as Christ does. Love others as Christ does. Serve others as Christ does. Primarily the way we exercise this is loving, serving, giving, forgiving those who don't deserve it. Those who will never pay it back. Those who can never return the favor. Because this is the kind of love Jesus is giving you and I day in and day out. To be in Christ is to see others as Christ sees them. There's probably somebody in your life who doesn't get the Christian life the way you do. In fact, their life may be a train wreck. You say, boy, if only they could get it the way I do. We would never say that, not out loud. We mistakenly think God likes us better than them. He had to die for me as much as he had to die for that Yahoo. Right? Where do we get off thinking we've got anything figured out? Humble ourselves and say every person we meet will in Christ will one day be glorified in Christ and approach them in that matter and it's time to jump off the high horse for a bit. The other thing that bothers us about other people is how messed up they are. Nothing is worse than coming to church and discovering it's full of people. That is precisely the situation we're called to be in. Worshiping Christ by serving others who sometimes are difficult to serve. This is the whole idea, is to worship Christ through holiness, not in my own room off on my own, but by engaging in real ministry to people who don't deserve it. Doing the good work God has called us to. Live holy with each other. Do you want hope? It isn't here. It's not in this life. There is nothing in this life that offers hope that lasts forever. There's stuff in this life that offers hope for a few minutes. There's stuff in this life that offers hope maybe for a couple of years. There's stuff in this life that offers hope for maybe a couple of decades. The worst thing that could happen to you is you find one of those things that offers hope for a period of time and you die while trying to get hope from that thing. You have been blessed if God has seen fit to remove from you all your false hopes so that you're left just clinging to him. You understand that right? You should pray that God would work in that other person's life that they might finally let go of all of those false hopes. Even though in our hearts we're going, man, God, I wish I had that stuff, right? 
God has so blessed some of us to remove all those false hopes that we're left holding on to Christ by our bare knuckles. And the book of James says this, you who are poor should exalt in your high position because he has seen fit to remove those things for us. When God moves to bless us with so many things from this world, we should be able to hold them very loosely and say, God, you have given me these things. That's awesome. Rock on. But God, help me not put my hope in this stuff because it goes away quick. Like a flower, it burns up, and it's gone. Do you want hope that is lasting hope, that's eternal hope? It's in Christ alone. There's no other hope. He raised from the dead. A new job doesn't raise from the dead. A bank account doesn't raise from the dead. Getting over your illness doesn't raise from the dead. Who raises from the dead? Okay, all the, all the answers in Church of Jesus. Come on, folks, stay with me. Jesus raises from the dead. Who else raises from the dead? All those in Christ. That is hope. That is the only hope that will get us to live through this life in holiness.